Welcome to episode 38 of the Listening Brain Podcast. Welcome to the Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. Hi, are you creative? Do you want to give a webinar or teach a course? Maybe you're a writer. Do you want to create a blog? Maybe you have an idea for a podcast. Whatever your passion is, we at 3C Digital Media Network want you to be a content creator so we can bring your ideas to life. So, to get started, visit our website at 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com and sign up to be a content creator. We look forward to seeing your passions come to life on our platform. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Jim and Leah Watson. As certified listening and spoken language specialists, Jim and Leah Watson have over 45 years' experience promoting listening and speaking as a way of life for people who are deaf or hard of hearing. Both trained under the late auditory verbal pioneers Daniel Ling and Helen Beebe. Jim's and Leah's certification in listening and spoken language, CERT AVT, is from 1994, the very first exam. Jim is the past president of Auditory Verbal International and the past board member of the A.G. Bell Association for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing. In 1980, Jim implemented the Auditory Verbal Inclusion Program for children who are deaf and hard of hearing in the Gloucester Public School System in Gloucester, Massachusetts. He directed and expanded that program for 34 years. In 1980, as a husband and wife team, Leah and Jim started the Auditory Verbal Communication Center in Gloucester, and which is a private practice offering parent guidance for families from all over New England. The Watsons helped children attend schools in their hometowns until specialists became available in those locations. Leah specialized in teaching parents of infants and preschoolers. She is the recipient of the 2008 Helen H. Beebe Memorial Award for Mentors in Auditory Verbal Therapy. From day one, the Watsons accepted students and other professionals to observe therapy or mentor with them. Throughout their career, they presented at Boston hospitals and at conferences with the A.G. Bell Association and the New England Cochlear Implant Association. As international consultants for children with hearing loss, they've worked in Canada, England, Australia, Qatar, and around the United States. They volunteered in Vietnam in 2011 and 2012 with the Global Foundation for Children with Hearing Loss. In 2020, they taught an online introductory course in auditory verbal therapy with the University of Hong Kong Special Education Department. Now retired, Jim and Leah spend time traveling, sailing, hiking, 
writing, painting, and as they continue to speak up and promote spoken language for children who are deaf or hard of hearing. Most of all, they enjoy listening and talking with their five grandchildren who all live in Gloucester. It is my pleasure again to welcome Jim and Leah Watson to the podcast. Jim, Leah, welcome to the podcast. For those who may not know you, which they probably are living under a rock, but those who may not know you, give us a brief introduction. Uh, well, I'll go first. Um, I started off in this field uh, in 1977 uh, when I attended the McGill program that Dr. Ling ran. So uh, basically, I got started right after college and uh, went to the McGill program, studied with Dr. Ling, and then other mentors like Helen Beebe and Judy Simser. And uh, that's how I got started. Uh, actually, before that, I was hanging with my then fiance, Leah, who will introduce herself. Mm -hmm. um, and she was in grad school at the time. Right. Well, we're a team. Uh, Jim and I are both certified auditory verbal therapists, mm -hmm. listening and spoken language therapists. We've had many titles through our career, and we'll <laughs> discuss that through the podcast. Sure. But uh, basically, basically, we love talking and communicating and helping other people talk, talk and communicate. But we've had uh, uh, a program here in Gloucester, Massachusetts, USA, for uh, 45 years. Uh, Jim wow. had a public school program, uh, one of the first inclusion uh, programs. And I had a small private practice um, out of a home office. Uh, I focused more on the babies and the young children. Uh, Jim spoke, focused more on the school age. But uh, I think what's interesting about our career uh, is that we're a team. We're mm -hmm. a husband-wife team. And I honestly couldn't do it without Jim. And I'm sure he couldn't do it without me. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> um, but uh, we got into it in different ways, and maybe we could talk about that now. Sure, sure. So let's jump in. So, Jim, you were you were with Dr. Ling, which is uh, you, you are among uh, those uh, professionals that are still in the field that that actually had a chance to study with him. Uh, unfortunately, there's not that many out there um, still practicing. And so how, how was that experience studying with, with uh, Daniel Ling? Well, that was, it was really an incredible experience because I met him in 1976, right after he published Speech in the Hearing Impaired Child. So he was basically riding that crest of, of um, incredible scientific development in, in the way he analyzed uh, speech teaching for, for children who are deaf and hard of hearing. So to meet him and to have him actually say to me, why don't you come study at McGill? <laughs> and and um, we got into a great conversation. He, he it, it was 1976, which was the centennial of the mm -hmm. telephone. And so right. we were living in the Boston area. I was a senior at Tufts University. And 
there was a lot of activity around A.G. Bell and the hundred years of, of telephone history. And, and that's, that would also coincided with meeting Dr. Lang. He was really interested in the fact that I was a direct descendant. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I'd like to say it was George Fallendorf, who was right. the CEO of the A.G. Bell Association, who made sure that that we met Dr. Ling. Um, okay. I know you were a yeah. former CEO of A.G. Bell. So I think that's important to note that. And I had already bought the book because I was a public school <laughs> speech pathologist and I had kids who were deaf and hard of hearing on my caseload. And I was like, how do I teach these kids to to uh, develop good speech skills? So it, it sort of was everything coming together. And um, and Dr. Link said, well, we'll get you a job at the Montreal Oral School. And you can, <laughs> you know, I can go to school. Well, it actually didn't quite work out that way. But Leah worked in Vermont the first year of the two-year grad program. I didn't quite believe Dr. Ling. Then after that, <laughs> I just always, he did get me a job at the Montreal Oral School. So I had uh, the, the uh, before my private practice and before working with Helen Beebe, I worked in a pu- couple of different public school systems and a school for the deaf. So I mm-hmm. had those kind of experiences already, which actually I, I could see there was something lacking. Right. Um, but although the Montreal Oral School program was a, was based within public school buildings, but it was pretty self-contained in, in, in its structure. Uh, but they, I mean, the idea was to keep the kids included in regular education settings as much as possible. So it was a school for the deaf, but they really were trying at that point in time to to build an integrated um, system of education and kids that were, that could be integrated back then were being through the world school program in Montreal. Um, And did that influence one of the facets? I was going to say, did did that experience influence what you did in public schools and in Gloucester? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Um, because, um, because I, I saw, uh, you know, we had, uh, you know, practicum experience in, in different age classrooms of the Montreal Oral School. And you could mm-hmm. see some of the benefits and some of the weaknesses of the program that as they had it set up. And it helped that helped me figure out the best way to run a public school program when I started mine in 1980. Didn't mean to cut um, off the story. Just going babies, um, so go ahead. Teaching babies to talk yeah. um, has uh, continues to be um, really the main purpose of my life. Um, mm-hmm. As a, I'm third oldest of eleven, um, so baby talk um, dominated mm-hmm. conversations um, every day of my youth, and actually every day of my life. Um, uh, when I was 17, uh, my youngest brother was born in 1969 in September. And December of that year, my 10-year-old daughter, I call her my daughter, my 10-year-old sister mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, had a brain aneurysm oh. that, um, that damaged her brain and left her aphasic. With, uh, mm-hmm. So she it wiped out her speech and language. Um, so that's the year I really started being interested in in the listening brain and what mm-hmm. what 
happens. Um, she uh, recovered. Uh, she was paralyzed on one side, but regained some of her movement. And my whole family buckled down and helped her relearn how to listen and talk. And I saw the what was needed was the whole family effort. Um, I saw, you know, the day in, day out um, practice of helping uh, a damaged brain learn to right. listen and talk. She did well. I'm happy to say she's uh, regained her skills. She did become left-handed. She was right-handed. So all we know about mm-hmm. the plasticity of the brain was, was evident right in my family. And um, so what I learned then, I think, was vital to my work with families who were deaf and hard, with children with deaf and hard of hearing kids, because I knew they had normal brain function. If we could right. just get the sound to the brain, it was much easier than teaching my sister. <laughs> right, right. Um, so so this, this, I think, for me, and, and uh, Jim was part of that, um, seeing, uh, because my, my sister continued, and the idea that there was a, a window of time, uh, we kept seeing my sister learning and learning beyond mm-hmm. what they said. You know, she, she really, um, a lot of kids uh, who had brain aneurysms at age 10 died. So it was just right. amazing, a miracle that she lived. And uh, so I have that experience um, always. Um, you know, propelling me to advocate for listening and spoken language uh, for kids who are deaf and hard of hearing or, or people who have aphasia. I mean, it's, it's, I just see so much potential. Right, right. So uh, both of you had some, some formative experiences, so to speak. Um, Leah, your family and your sister, and of course, uh, Jim, you with uh, Dr. Ling and, and that early experience there, Miguel and both of you being, you know, affiliated with uh, Montreal Oral School. And so you, you guys were sort of in the field before the term auditory verbal was sort of being used. It was almost sort of coined around the same time. Is that right? Well, uh, actually, what the, the history there that you mentioned would have started in 1978 with um, when Helen Beebe uh, organized a committee within A.G. Bell called the International Committee of Auditory Verbal Communication, or ICABAC, mm-hmm. they called it. ICABAC. And it was basically a, a, a group within A.G. Bell of professionals like ourselves who, who um, were interested in teaching through audition rather than mm-hmm. vision. And back in the, in the 70s, there was, you know, there was, most most of the teaching really included vision in most of the of the option schools and whatnot. Um, so ICAVAC or that committee was formed, and we we um, worked for several years together. And then we felt like we could do more if we were independent of AG Bell. Mm-hmm. And so um, ICAVAC left AG Bell and became auditory verbal international right and the board of avi auditory verbal international included ear nose and throat doctors avt professionals uh the uh, several audiologists as well as parents of kids who are deaf and hard of hearing and so that gave us um the platform to create 
a term for auditory verbal therapy. You know, Dorian Pollack called it uh, acupedic and Helen Beebe called it unisensory. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thea Griffiths using it, another term on the West Coast. So we decided that that at collectively, if we called it one, gave it one name, and then right. created a consistent set of standards to go with that name, that we would get traction as professionals. And that's essentially what we did. By 1994, AVI was able to create the first certification exam for auditory verbal therapists. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we managed that for several years. And then AVI morphed back into AG Bell as the Academy for Listening and Spoken Language, which continues to this day to manage the certification exams. Right, right. But we we really needed that network of professionals mm-hmm. uh, that ICABAC and then AVI provided us because we were just on our own here in Gloucester, Massachusetts. But being connected with a worldwide group of very energetic, uh, smart um, professionals that are um, just we're, we're very helpful. We could call any of them for advice if we had a case that we were. Um, confused about, we would have um, various, they, they became what the academy is now. They, the, For us, you know, in the early right. days, we had that, um, which, um, you know, I think working as a team uh, in auditory verbal uh, is so important. Um, and that, that provided us a network of, of yeah. professionals. A great platform for sharing information and experiences, you know, pre- internet it, it's it's, <laughs> right. it's we hard were, to we were we were calling on the phone yeah, and then right. using the fax machine oh yeah the fax machine went <laughs> constantly oh yes uh, jim oh, yes. was jim was president of avi and in our little office in our little home office the fax machine was going round the clock with uh, papers coming in from all over the world it, it was very exciting time we, we knew mm-hmm. we were part of something that was uh, advancing this opportunity for families around the world. And it, it was, it's just very exciting work for us to be part of that. Yeah. And that was, you know, for me, I was in South Carolina and got, uh, became, a you know, joined AVI and became, I think I was 95, no, 96 when I took the exam which I think was the second time they had offered it or yes. second group. Um, and then I was on the board of ABI for a while. And then uh, yes. when I was hired at AG Bell, I had to leave the ABI board at the time because there was a lot of sort of division between the two. And then my last year at AG Bell uh, as executive director was sort of at the time of transition of trying to negotiate and work with Steve Reck to, to kind of figure out how this was going to, how ABI would sort of move over the certification program and what AG Bell would have in its place and all of that. And I, I left right as that was sort of wrapping up. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I remember those days and being able to be involved in ABI. And it was that network of professionals at the time that, that really kept me going because in, in South Carolina at the yes. time, there was, there was not a lot going on. <laughs> And not a lot of people uh, oh, yeah. interested in AV in auditory verbal, and and it was sort of being in the wilderness, trying to, you know, preach to the to the 
to the wilderness and say, this is what we need to be doing. And, and, uh, uh, Debbie Kohler was down in um, Charleston. Um, I'm not sure what happened with Debbie, um, but she was the only other certified person that that I could interact with. Um, so it was it was definitely an outlet for that professional growth and networking and and just being a part of something like you're saying, Leah, uh, being part of something that was you know really cutting edge and, and exciting. Yes. Yeah, and AVI had had uh, quite a few international conventions that right. uh, mm-hmm. were really well attended, and uh, I think uh, I think in the bottom line for what AVI did was it created a real uh, a, a real um, awareness of mm-hmm. what auditory verbal therapy is and what it could do, and how how to spread it you know far and wide not just us here in the u.s but push it way way off into other countries and yeah make it more universal all right that's right and i, and I think because of avi it's sort of uh you know especially with cochlear implantation and uh, it's sort of become that standard of care you know where Physicians and, and and especially parents are saying, you know, I want my kids to talk and I want an AV person working with them after, you know, the surgery. Um, yes. So in that sense, I think, you know, I think, and now we look at, you mentioned the option schools. Most of them are now, you know, a lot of the professionals there are AV certified, either the ED or Cert AVT. And, yeah. and, uh, and they're talking to you know, the same game that we were talking back then, you know, about audition first and all these things. And so it's been a complete right. shift. Uh, took well, a couple of decades. Have, yes, it's great to have the principles of auditory verbal practice. I keep uh, I keep them framed in my office so that mm-hmm. people know this is this is the platform that I'm working from. And I think that gives parents an assurance that this is this is how it's going to go. And the fact that we have that and a standard of, of care, a certification, um, I think it's great for families um, to know what they're going to get. Uh, I know we had uh, Rachel Chakoff was the first cochlear mm-hmm. implant recipient in New England uh, at two mm-hmm. and a half. And um, she was already uh, working with us for about a year and a half. And um, we had to resort to lip reading because she just had no hearing. I, I didn't know there were actually people that had zero hearing, but she was one of them. But again, I teamed up with what was happening in New York at the New York League for the Heart of Hearing. And again, we we had weekly phone calls, you know, this, this, this idea of cooperation and and teamwork, um, and sharing of the new knowledge, what was what really helped me and Jim, um, I think, do the best job that we could for the families that we worked with. And um, so I'm grateful for all the uh, cooperation throughout our career. We we just were in the right place at the right time, and and you know, you know all these great people in our field are just so um, open minded and kind hearted to help um, to share uh, what we know. Uh, so I I feel and that I, was important. I think I think all of the auditory verbal professionals that were working pre cochlear implant days. Mm-hmm. Learn to have that expectation that kids, even with limited hearing, mm-hmm. uh, could develop great communication skills, spoken communication skills. And um, 
So having that, that understanding before the implant showed up helped us just say, okay, bing, with applying the same information and actually getting better results. Um, it's much easier. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, it, the kids that really, really struggled now didn't have to struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and I think that uh, parents saw that as a, you know, people were sort of scared away from the idea of doing surgery. But once they saw the benefits that a, that, uh, that a, a segment of the population was receiving that weren't receiving through standard hearing aid tech technology, I think it, it just you know, created a, a sense of relief for those parents. And um, it just blossomed from there. Right. It's, it's sort of what I've always kind of seen as sort of the technology keeping, sort of catching up with the approach. <laughs> we knew the approach would work, yeah. but the technology had to keep catching up to make it even better and better, you know? Oh, so for, when, yeah. when, uh, when Dr. Ling sent Jim down to the BB Center as part of his practicum, uh, Jim came back. I was at Montreal Oral School. He came back and said, you won't believe how these kids are talking. You won't believe <laughs> what's happening down in this little clinic. And he wanted us to, um, you know, work down there. And BB had two jobs open, uh, mm. one for Jim in the clinic. And one I had the privilege of observing Helen BB teach every morning at nine o'clock and then <laughs> take what she did in that lesson. Talk about talk about the great mentoring program. Right. I had to uh, take what I saw her do and mm-hmm. help the family do that in the demonstration home for the rest of the day. Um, and, but what we saw there, we, you know, we had been around, we didn't see anything like that happening anywhere else. And so I was like, why isn't the whole world looking at this? You know, I mean, it would seem so fabulous. What without, with those analog hearing aids, she right. was able to get these kids listening with a teeny tiny bit of hearing and mm-hmm. um, have a great voice quality and, um, you know, it was it was absolutely amazing working with her. Um, so and, it's, and that so how was her style different? Because I've I've heard others kind of talk about her style to a degree. Um, and, and so, what did she do, for example? I mean, just give me a, a, an idea of a typical session and how she would kind of run that um, session. Well, she kept uh, props to a minimum. And the focus that she had on the expectation of the child to listen and then verbalize is what I saw in my family with my sister. So I saw this this focus of um, expectation, like you see when when a mother is talking to her infant, you know, in, in, in just natural baby communication. But Bibi had that expectation Um, And she moved in very small steps. So Mm -hmm. she always wanted the child to be successful. So every little activity that she asked them to do was something she knew they could do. Um, And and so she moved along like that. And she talked normal voice. In fact, if I was working in the next room, you can hear my voice is kind of loud. She'd be, Leah, (laughs) tone down. (laughs) Uh, so, So... 
natural communication, um, auditory, uh, she knew the auditory development um, and how to make it happen. She included the parents in a different way than we do now in that she had them observing. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I think that was okay um, because the parents just soaked in what she was doing and then were asked to do that later with me so that it, it she she did include that parent aspect. Um, and then she taught us how to use the experience book. So mm-hmm. every family had a book, which was essentially the goals and objectives of what that child was doing every day, every week, every month. And, and um, natural language, what the child was interested in. Right. Um, she also had... Um, an interesting selection of, of cards. They, they were called face pictures. So they were mm-hmm. uh, about a half half size sheet of regular uh, eight and a half by 11 paper. So they're quite large, almost life size. Yeah. Uh, they had a schematic face features that illustrated different phonemes. And so it wasn't they she didn't use these came from Dr. Freshels in Vienna, and they weren't used as uh, as a way of showing how visual, you know, a visual uh, description of a of a speech sound. They were just meant to represent a visual reference that sound. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for instance, ah look looked like ah. Um, and it, it, it wasn't meant for lip reading. It was meant for attaching meaning to a sound. So mm-hmm. you, could in, you could instantly and receptively understand whether a child could hear the difference between, say, the Ling five, six, six, sound. six sounds. Yeah. And you could get them discriminating very easily by using these, these cards. Um, she knew what sounds the kids could hear or not hear and right. how to then expect them to hear them. Right. So it was, it was kind of a precursor to the six sound test. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it became also a way of stimulating very, very young children, babies, because babies tend to like those black and white facial images. Um, mm-hmm. And so you could just, she could just stimulate all the speech sounds without having any expectation at all from the kid. Yeah. And, and, and she and was a have... bit, of, she was a bit of a, a actress. So she would, <laughs> you know, use her voice and her uh, body language, you know, to uh, dramatize the sounds in a baby talk kind of way. So if you were working with a child who had just been diagnosed at two and a half, how are you going to get those, you know, the sound stimulation this was a way that she um, figured out how to do that. And uh, it worked well. They were fun. Uh, we continued to use them in our practice. Um, yeah, and- they, have a lot of, they have a lot of interesting uses um, mm-hmm. besides just looking at the image. Um, and we, we could play all kinds of games with them. And uh, most kids related to them. They're, it's a, it's yeah. pretty, pretty interesting uh, and not a lot of people, I don't think, other than BB, BB trained, trained people really were aware <laughs> of what she was doing. Uh, but now the kids just learn so quickly, you yeah. wouldn't need that. Right, right. 
Well, I just I just find it fascinating. You guys had the opportunity to to work with you know Dan Lang and Helen Beebe and sort of these these gurus in the field and 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 leaders and 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 really those sort of seminal people that were out there at the time. Um, so I, I just asked, did you have a chance to to visit with Doreen Pollock? Well, Doreen Pollock was uh, was on the original ICAVAC and then ABI board. So, I mean, my interactions with her were more personal. Right, I right. never actually went to Denver and right. saw her, you know, doing therapy. Um, but part of the McGill program was was based on practicums, and we would have mm-hmm. month long practicums. So I I did work with Judy Simser for an entire month at at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. And right. that was, you know, that, that was just as equally fantastic for, for me sure, to work sure. with her and Winifred Northcott and, and her mm-hmm. program in Minneapolis. So, and, and then as part of, of um, interacting with the AVI board back then, we did see a lot of, uh, videotapes of each mm-hmm. each other working because right. that's pretty much how you how you did your conferences then was you know you mm-hmm. videotape sessions and 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 show that so we there was a lot of that kind of interaction with and, Warren and, Estabrooks and yeah, people like that yeah and right. we did have long conversations with Doreen Pollock I remember talking to her about how I didn't have time for something that she thought I wanted to do. And I, she, and I said, I don't think I have time for that. And she says, no, busy people get things done. Busy, busy people do that. <laughs> she wasn't going to let me off the hook. Um, right, she right. like maybe had high expectations and well, her book, I mean, you know, her book spoke to us. Um, sure. Her book was uh, very instrumental in outlining the principles, outlining technique, um, and so that um, we could always talk to her. We, we, we would, you know, at these conferences, we, we just had the availability of all these people. I mean, it was just there. They were right there. And Warren Estabrooks was a great um, person for us to get ideas from his mm-hmm. uh, listen, here, talk and sing all the little songs. I incorporated right, all of right. that in my work. And um, but he again, I could always email him or you know, ask him questions. I mean, everybody was just, you know, very helpful. Um, we, we, we were grabbing ideas from everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all, right. You know, you see something, it's like, Hmm, how, how can I use that? <laughs> but that's how we all learn and grow. I mean, that's just, uh, you know, you know, what's the old saying? Imitation is the highest form of flattery. You know, some, if I'm imitating <laughs> someone that, that I've seen do some great work, I'm, you know, Hopefully they'll see that as flattery, not stealing. Um, So uh, that was Dan's whole point was, mm -hmm. you know, Dr. Ling, he was, uh, he felt like by training us to do the work, he was teaching way more children than Mm -hmm. one program in Montreal. So right. that was that yeah. was really his impetus in, in his training program. Well, I, I would like to share the story of how we started in Gloucester. Sure. Um, it has Dan Ling involved. And uh, we were down at the Helen Beauty Center. We'd spent one year there and we'd really learned so much. And the great thing about our mentors, I think, is they let us go. They, they mm-hmm. believed in us. So 
BB felt it was time for us to go. We felt it was time for us to go. And so um, it was a Friday afternoon and uh, and, um, Jim called. I I said, let's talk to Dr. Lane. He got you down here. Let's see what what, what idea does he have for us next? That's what I said. Jim called from uh, Eastern Pennsylvania. He made the phone call to Montreal. And so I, I get um, Dr. Ling on the phone. I'm like, hey, hey, Dan, I'm, we're thinking about moving back to Massachusetts. And both our parents had roots in, in the Gloucester area. And, and I said, do you, you know if there's any possibilities? Have you heard of any, you know, school systems or job opportunities in, in the Massachusetts area? And he says, uh, wait a minute. And he got off the phone, gave me to his secretary. <laughs> it was like really puzzled why he did that. And, and I was chatting with her and he comes back to the phone a few minutes later and he goes, he says, well, you're in luck. Right now in my office, I have two families from Gloucester, Massachusetts, who have children who were here for the week for evaluations. And my recommendation to them was to hire a McGill graduate to start <laughs> start a program in the public schools, <laughs> and, and then you called. So so um, basically, you know, he paved the way for me. All I the, the parents went back to the school and they said, "This is what we would we think you should do," and here's a person that's willing to do it. And literally, I just had to come and sit for an interview. And then they hired me and they said, we have no program here. We've never <laughs> serviced hearing impaired kids. Set it up and do whatever you want. And I had wow. pretty much pretty much a free reign to do anything I wanted to service hearing impaired kids in the city of Gloucester. So basically it became a, you know, there wasn't a term for auditory verbal at that point, but it became the an auditory verbal program because that mm-hmm. was my philosophy. Um, and it was really unusual for a public school program to have a program where parents came in, were part of therapy, mm-hmm. uh, kids were integrated right from the beginning. We had an integrated preschool. So I made sure that the, the preschool teachers were all on board. Um, the speech and language staff was really happy because they didn't know what to do. With they had no idea. <laughs> they were like, they were like ah! And, and as soon as I was there, they were, all of a sudden, all these kids started to be shoveled my direction from the, the regular speech and hearing staff. And they were just, they couldn't have been happier to have somebody that was willing to take on the uh, that population from their caseload. So, all of a sudden I had, you know, kids coming in that were, you know, weren't the ones that were initially identified. And that program just became, you know, just took on a life of its own. That's and amazing. I was, uh, Jim and I had had our first child, Kiara, who was three months old at the time. So I was happy to stay at home and be with my own baby. Mm-hmm. Then I got a phone call from this mother who said, hi, I, I hear you know how to teach deaf babies how to talk. And I said, well, I do, but I'm not working now. She goes, yes, you are. You're working with me because <laughs> my, my husband is my husband is deaf and he speaks. So they're they're trying to teach her sign language and she can't do that because, you know, we're we're an oral family. So when can when can I bring her? 
(laughs) And that's how I started my private practice. Um, And, you know, about four months later, there was a, uh, actually, a a journalist did an interview on your new program. And then the journalist had a baby who was deaf, who then became my six-week-old infant in in, in my, I mean, it was just, it just sort of blossomed like that. There was a need for it. And Mm-hmm. Um, we were able to, um, you know, do the work that, that we were trained to do. Yeah. Well, it, it's amazing for both of you to sort of, for Jim to, for the school district, just to say, we will hire you and set it up. I mean, today, you know, some districts may do that, but most of them are going to drag their feet until the last possible minute to do anything. And of course, you know, especially set up a whole program for at the time was two children, maybe, and then it grew. Um, and then Leah just, you know, all these sort of interesting synchronicities started to happen and led, right. you know, leads to your, you know, the private practice getting off the ground. So it's really amazing set of circumstances. It also was really great that that she was right here in Gloucester working with infants because it mm-hmm. meant that any any local infant, and we had some kids that were actually tuitioned into Gloucester, mm-hmm. uh, any any of them who were working with Leah were just all set to go when they turned three to come in my program. So right. um, it it was it was it, it couldn't have been a better collaboration. Yeah, I mean, at this time, the schools for the deaf were still very active. Um, we saw all of them close during our career, but at that mm-hmm. point, the. the uh, we had to argue some of our kids who were very auditory verbal, you know, just easily communicating, going to regular school, um, that some of these towns already had this program that they should just fit right into. And we were saying, no, this is when we contacted Dr. Ling, Doreen Pollock, all these mm-hmm. people saying, can you write a letter of support saying this child should not be in a sign language program? People educators just didn't understand that kids who are deaf could talk well and go to regular school. I mean, it, it seems archaic now, but we would sit around big conference tables arguing yeah. <laughs> that, that this could happen. And <laughs> right. Right. Um, I look back and I think, you know, was that a nightmare? Did that really happen? But, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. but, um, but it seemed like every town, every Every child, we had to um, advocate that they go to their own school, and and we did because the kids the kids could do it, and uh, we had the support of of all these other professionals backing us up, you know. And and the I'm sure the families were very the parents were very educated uh, about yes. what they wanted, obviously, and 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 were probably pushing equally as hard from their perspective. Yes, we were fortunate. I, I want to give a big salute to the families who chose us, uh, who mm-hmm. chose to work with us in those days because we didn't have the data that we have now. We didn't have the right. research. We didn't have. Uh, we would show little videotapes, and 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 they they um, just wanted it as badly as 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 we did, and and made it happen, but with very little evidence, if you would say. Um, now I'm grateful for the evidence. I think it's important to have that, but we didn't have that evidence. And, and so the parents who provided this, you know, data, you know, we have mm-hmm. to give a big thank you to them because um, 
they um, they they really were the pioneers, I think. Yeah. So the, the, right. here's an interesting anecdote. Um, in 2006, we were invited to uh, work in South Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, South Australia had just passed a newborn screening, and the center that we had we were invited to work for um, had been previously a school for the deaf, an oral school, but a school mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. little classrooms, and they they didn't really have an inclusion. They didn't, it wasn't really an inclusion program and it didn't start at age zero. So mm-hmm. they were trying to transfer from a um, school for the deaf background, non-inclusion program that started with kids that were older than three to what do we do with kids that are zero to mm-hmm. three and how do we make this more of a auditory verbal inclusion program? So when we went, we spent a whole year there and I took a year leave of absence. And so when I left, I talked to the SPED director and I said, I can help you try to find a professional to take over my my role here. And she's like, oh, no, I'm going to rely on the um, collaborative, the special ed collaborative, which provides me with folks that can come and fill in for you and stuff. And I'm like, are you sure you want to do it that way? I'd be more than happy to help. It's a very specialized job that I'm doing here. You right. may not realize it's not going to be as easy as you think to. And she goes, no, I've already talked to some of the superintendents and we got it figured out. And I said, okay, that's good. You can go ahead and do that. I, we weren't in Australia more than about a month when I started getting all these frantic <laughs> emails from parents saying, what is going on? I've had to stop services. My kids can't mm. stand what's going on. And all of all hell broke loose for a mm. year. When I got back, the SPED director was like, God, what is wrong with your profession? I, we couldn't get anybody to do what you were doing. <laughs> and it was a disaster. Don't ever leave. Don't do this again while I'm working here. <laughs> so it just goes to show that it's really, it, mm. it is it is a real selective opportunity to get people who are willing to uh, follow the auditory verbal principles within a public school program. It's not easy. And it requires, um, you know, stepping outside your, the traditional role that, that a professional would have in a, in a school system. Right. Right. And, and so what do you think, were your keys to longevity in the Gloucester uh, school district? <laughs> uh, nobody knew what I was doing. <laughs> the parents were happy. Okay. Parents were happy. The kids did really well. And the teachers really liked having my uh, input. So because all the kids were mainstream right from the get-go, mm-hmm. Uh, I spent more time doing teacher in-service work and stepping in to um, their classrooms and being mm-hmm. present. And right. so it wasn't like they felt that a, a child was being thrust upon them and they had to figure out what to do. I would, I was there to help get everything working smoothly. And once mm-hmm. 
once the teachers could see this, the skill level of my, of our kids and a lot of our kids picked up reading quicker than regular kids because of their, uh, you know, they knew they how knew to the use their hearing. They knew the acoustic mm-hmm. properties of speech. They knew right. exactly right. what was going on. And so teaching reading became an easy, was a lot easier for those kids. And they became role models in the, some of their classrooms. And so I basically the teachers were, were happy. The principals were happy that I was what I was doing. The parents were happy because their kids were doing well. And so the administration basically thought everything was great. And, and, <laughs> and um, I, I just, my, my longevity was based on the fact that everybody was happy with what was going on. And, and so there was no reason for, you know, st- stopping a program that was successful. So uh, successful. And when, and- I retired, when I retired, we were able to hire somebody that, although not an auditory verbal therapist was working as an auditory verbal educator. And so mm-hmm. just jumped right in and was able to keep that program going. So successful in this me in this sense, which I think in probably most programs is having great outcomes with the kids. If you can see the proof is in the pudding and the proof is in the children talking and reading and academically being successful. So that's wonderful. So I'll ask uh, Leah the same thing in terms of what what was the key to success in having such a great private practice over the years? And was it the word of mouth? Was it uh, getting the outcomes that you were seeing? Um, word of mouth and the outcomes. Um, I think the audiologists, um, though the audiologists don't recommend auditory verbal therapy, they appreciate. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 uh, and um, uh, so I think, um, yeah, we were really the only people in the early days doing this. So mm-hmm. um, we we received all the families that wanted this um, kind of uh, spoken language. Um, and uh, so, I, yeah, I think all, all the kids did so well. Um, and um, uh one thing I, I think I learned from from my mentors was, you know, you listening and talking is fun. You know, so mm-hmm. if you're not having fun, you know, uh, so all the families would come and uh, we became close. I mean, it, you, mm-hmm. you know, from working with families, you get very close. And um, I kept my program small um, so that I could enjoy it. Um, at one point, one of the big hospitals wanted us to come and be uh, part of the hospital in Boston. And again, I talked to Dr. Ling. I said, this is great. This is a great opportunity for auditory verbal. And he said, but is that what you want to do? Do you want to yeah. run a program in a hospital? And I said, no. <laughs> I, he says, what will make you happy? I said, uh, teaching in my home office. And he said, well, do what makes you happy. And I think right. that probably the key to my longevity is that um i i was always enjoying what i was doing um as hard as i worked i mean it's you know it's 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 a hard, it's a big focus it's 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 a lot um to do for a family but i i loved every minute of it and um i and so i think that was it just um and i think you know uh 
being on this crest of change and 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 having the ten principles and having the uh, certification, uh, I was able to then uh, mentor other people. We have a couple of other uh, mm-hmm. people in New England that, that we've mentored, and um, so that the the longevity is that we've spread the word with other professionals. Um, and um, um, but now I, I've I I just enjoyed every minute. Well, um, all you know, very good advice and very good uh, insights into helping others be professional or, or have success, I should say, in the field. And and related to that, what do you think uh, today? Where where do you think the challenges still are? Are um, what do you think needs to happen today? As you as you look back on your careers, but also continuing to, to work with families and, and, and interact with them. What do you think we're, we're still missing? Well, that's a good question. I, I really think that um, there's still a lot of animosity in the um, culturally deaf population. And um, that, uh, that animosity um, doesn't you know? Doesn't help uh, with getting our message across. Um, mm-hmm. I think that for a long time, auditory verbal therapists have just basically quietly done their own thing and created a, a body of parents and children that are out there speaking for themselves. Mm-hmm. And what I think would benefit all of us would be for more of the adults who have been through auditory verbal and have been successful to be more outspoken for what what they have received and um but that that's not something that we can we have any control over that has that's something that hopefully you know in time people will start to pick up that um, flag and wave it a little bit more proudly. Um, I also think that um, the sort of public opinion around uh, the use of sign language, um, you know, uh, what professionals should be doing is like looking for more inclusive ways of of showing the world that um, you know, all hearing impaired people don't use sign language, but they all use captioning. And so the captioning, you know, closed captioning should be a lot more um, seriously pursued rather than, you know, having a little signer on the corner of your TV screen. And I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. I'm just saying that it would benefit more more of the population, the geriatric population, the hard of hearing population, as well as the deaf population. Um, and I really, um, I, I really take offense when you, when you listen to like lead K kind of people who think that all hearing impaired kids need sign language because mm-hmm. um, it, it should be an option and it shouldn't be forced upon kids. So there are some political things that have happened in the in the last few years that I think are um, 
you know, aren't helping our professional track, if you will. Right. But then there are things that are happening that are really good, like, mm-hmm. you know, Dana Susskind's book and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, getting getting the word out about how uh, how this is, you know, a, 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 it's a brain emergency. It's not a hearing mm-hmm. emergency. And how, mm-hmm. how do we how do we, you know, show people that early intervention is really the way to go with hearing impaired kids? You might have. Yeah. Well, I think uh, with a nod to you, Todd, I think things like the Listening Brain podcast, where (laughs) we we get the word out there that that kids who are deaf and hard of hearing can do this. I mean, how many times I will meet somebody on an airplane or somewhere? Oh, I teach children who are deaf how Mm -hmm. to listen and talk. Oh, you know sign language. Like, no, I said I teach them how to listen and talk. (laughs) So now I say I teach them how to listen and talk, and I don't do sign language. (laughs) And, you know, uh, but just, uh, and and I think the movie Coda, which was Mm -hmm. filmed in Gloucester, um, gave a good picture of um, both sides. You know, I mean, here was uh, the opportunity for um, that. And I so I just think getting more... uh, I, you know, books, movies, podcasts, you know, what, what, what do people pay attention to now? Um, right. But, and I, I do agree with Jim that more uh, people who um, have learned to listen and talk, um, you know, they get, they just get swallowed up and they're invisible. They, people don't right. know they're deaf because they listen and talk so well, but, mm-hmm. but, uh, but I'm amazed uh, at this day and age that we have to still, you know, explain this <laughs> because it you know to all of us it just seems so obvious and and easy i mean there always will be that one child that comes along that's a tough a tough case but uh, um but hopefully our certified therapists are trained to to meet the need of that family but pretty much kids are doing this pretty easily right um and families are not having the struggle that we witnessed i mean some families really struggle and um to get what they wanted i think they're happy in the end but uh, i'm um so i i think uh just more publicity um you know uh certainly you know in a hundred years it's it's better than when uh when mabel bell was a little girl and <laughs> right. her parents were foraging the way for inclusion for spoken language um uh, back in in the late 1800s i mean we can we can say we've come a long way there but um but i think more open-mindedness and more um respect uh for choice in in the methods i i think for some families you know this is absolutely the right way to go and um they you know i think to to know about it um we we still get people that say i i didn't hear about this i didn't know about this um it just seems amazing to me um but that still happens. So um, we'll see. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, somewhat alarmed with some of the things that you guys have mentioned in terms of um, the idea. We see all these posts online and things like that about, you know, these kids, if they are language deprived, if they don't sign, in a sense, you have all these thousands of deaf kids who don't have access to language because they're not signing as if that's the only way they can have access to language. And the, the other thing that I think is getting sort of 
mixed up in this a bit is the idea of neurodiversity. And so you have children and adults who are on the autism spectrum who are now saying or sort of embracing, you know, being neurodiverse and and that, you know, being accepted for their differences rather than trying to always correct what they're doing kind of thing. And and I see that I was actually listening to a, a speaker the other day and they were on a, on a webinar. Um and they were talking about they kind of equated that to deaf culture, uh, in a sense that oh, w- in a sense that we should be respectful of deaf people and let them advocate for themselves, in the sense that they know what's best for them and and if they want ASL then that's what we should do kind of thing. Um, and I thought it was a it was a stretch to kind of equate the the same same things because. Obviously, I want parents to make those choices and want parents to decide what they want for their child and what's best for their child and their family. But I see this whole neurodiverse diversity movement kind of in sort of encrenching or uh, coming into this whole idea of of deafness and 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 that's kind of getting wrapped up in that too. So I don't know if you guys have seen any of that, but starting to see a little bit of that. Oh. I, we haven't seen that the neurodiversity thing, I don't think, but we have seen the disinformation around um, the um, language deprivation issue mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. not using sign. Um, and uh, it, it just, to me, you know, because I've, I've been at this for a long time. You've seen over t- over the years they they kind of changed their focus. Like first it was you know TC is the way to go, right? Do mm-hmm. both, and the kids are going to learn to talk and they're going to learn to sign. So everyone's going to be happy, and of course it didn't work. And their own research showed that it didn't work. But but the signing folks instead of coming out and saying, well, the kids that did, you know, we're doing oral first, we're doing better in language development. Let's start helping make that a reality. They said, oh, no, what we should be doing is just teaching sign without speech and language. Make, you know, just do that. And and so it's a question of looking at the research and then having a whole completely different outtake on what to do about it. And mm-hmm. um, I think, I think the, uh, the, the, this disinformation thing about language deprivation is kind of the same. They're just saying, all right, all these kids are getting implants and going to regular school and doing really well. Mm-hmm. So how can we, how are we going to keep teaching, you know, in, in uh, advocating for sign language when those kids aren't doing so well. So then they're going to blame uh, language deprivation. They're going to say right. that we're depriving these kids. It's it's just one more kind of excuse for saying, uh, you know, these kids are doing well and our kids aren't doing so well. Well, one thing right. that Jim and I have reminded ourselves about time and again, We've heard Mark Twain say, it's very hard to convince someone of a good idea when their paycheck depends Mm -hmm. on believing on the other side of the idea. 
Right. And I, I have gone to conferences at ASHA and heard these, these marvelous speakers thinking, I don't know this person. Who is this? They're just expounding on this language. And then I find mm. out, oh, they're talking about sign language. No wonder I don't know who they are. And they're, right. and, and it's, they are as passionate about that as we are about this. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's hard to look at, at the data when it's not in your favor, you know, if, right. if, um, but anyway, um, the wisdom of Mark Twain has helped us. Uh, <laughs> it was sort of back down because, you know, we, we know what we're doing and, and in order for us to um, persevere and what we feel and, and know is in our heart, the right thing to do. Um, uh, we're therapists uh, first and, uh, and we'll advocate as best we can, but I think uh, teaching well and helping the families uh, live with auditory verbal um, and listening and spoken language is, you know, we feel comfortable. That's the best we can do. Right. Um, yeah. The other thing is government funding is very slanted toward sign language. I mean, mm-hmm. when I heard how much, how much that influenced, I backed down because I just said, you know, you can't compete with that until, until there's a movement to get more funding for listening and spoken language you know, money right. talks. Right, right. Well, Very true. Well, we, I, I want to be respectful. That, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> well, we. I, I want to be respectful of your your time, but I, I want to sort of end on um, what advice would you give the starting clinician today that are maybe hopefully coming out of a university program who's been exposed to auditory verbal and listening and spoken language, and and they they want to become a, a certified little trained therapist clinician what advice do you give them as a as they start their careers well we have a good story because one of our graduates has a daughter who's just graduating from emerson college with an undergrad in speech pathology and she wants to become a third avg awesome um, <laughs> so cool. uh we told her to, to get the best uh master's degree in speech pathology and audiology mm-hmm. that she can and and find a mentor we said we'd help her but i think um I came from the speech pathology side so i i, I advocate for that because i feel sure. like i'm always drawing on my skills there um but i say um go for it i mean it's it's a fabulous job we need people you'll always have a job (laughs) i think following the you know following the 10 principles and really you know interacting with with other professionals that are that have experience in the field like a mentor is really a very important step and um you know, I think by at least observing other professionals doing high quality auditory verbal therapy, um, in addition to following the 10 principles and, and sitting for the certification exam, that, you know, all of those things will eventually, you know, lead them to be really successful AV practitioners. Yeah, I think it's really wonderful we have all that in place. You know, mm-hmm. it was hard 25 years ago when somebody wanted to do this. How 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 did we guide them? Now we can right. say get get a solid master's degree at a place where there's a cert AVT if you can. Right. And then 
uh, follow the follow the steps. The steps are there um, to um, to get the certification, and um, you know it. it, it so I, I'm so grateful for all of that hard work that all of us were part of uh, on the crest of change because uh, I think that that's going to open the door for a lot more professionals. Yeah. And you're, you, you know, you've been in academia way more than we have. So, I mean, you might have some ideas as well about teacher training programs and what's going on there. Well, I, I certainly think um there needs to be more uh, in terms of teacher training and and programs in, in speech language pathology, audiology. Uh, I think the, you know, I think what I see right now, unless there is a faculty member that really has a background in this area, they're probably not going to get exposed to it. And, and sort of one of the um, challenges in speech language pathology is sort of the the scope of practice is so wide from, from the as they say from the womb to the tomb and you have a two years <laughs> master's degree um or you know two years to try to squeeze everything in it's it's almost impossible to to get students well trained and i hate to say it that way in you know sort of the way the the training has changed is has been a focus on competency, which is great. You want students to graduate with competencies. But when I was in grad school, we had you know we had to get twenty hours with this population and twenty clock hours with this population, you know, and all that. And it was really well defined. And so I everyone had to leave grad school working with children with hearing loss or you know adults who stutter and mm-hmm. you know, all the whole gamut. Um, it's not like that now. You have to still get uh, 400 clock hours, but they've collapsed all those sort of specific areas into child language or child speech, adult language, adult speech, those kinds of things. And so, you know, a student could go through their grad program and get all of their child language and child speech working with other kids um, without hearing loss. And so there's, you know, so it's... that's my experience with with working with other speech pathologists in public mm-hmm. school settings is that right. many of them have never even put their hands on a hearing aid. Mm-hmm. So they don't they really don't they don't know anything about it at all. Right. And it, I, you know, I don't say that I'm not, you know, that's not a judgmental thing, it's just practicality. They don't have time to to learn about that. And and you know, it's a low incidence disability. And Many therapists might not ever have a kid with a hearing loss on their caseload. You know? That's right. <clears throat> so th- there are still challenges there in terms of getting more people trained in their in their master's programs. Um, uh, but I mean, there's a, there's a handful, obviously, of us out there that are you know in academic programs that are you know pushing it forward. But uh, I wish there was a lot more. Um, so hopefully, we'll get more. Doctoral students yeah. will come out with this as an interest and and will go into academia and do some of that. But it's, uh, is, is it's a that, challenge. Is Carol is Carol Fletcher still still hard at work there? Or? She she's retired. Um, she's still hard at work. I was just in Mexico City <laughs> with her, uh, and uh, she was presenting down there at the same conference. And uh, uh, she's still traveling, doing all of her lecturing and and all of that. And uh, okay. And uh, 
So she retired right before I came. So that was what, 11 years ago. <clears throat> and then uh, Denise Ray was still on faculty with me. And, and Denise retired about, um, she retired, then she came back <laughs> for a couple of years. <laughs> and then she uh, officially retired again. Uh, so she's been out about three or four years now. And, uh, and but she's, you know, they're both still in contact and, and still come by and visit and, and do things here and there. But well, we uh, need more programs like the University I of Akron yeah. that, that, you know, have this this nucleus of uh, auditory verbal professionals, you know, teaching. Um, that would right. be great. And uh, so, we're, you know, we're trying to keep keep it going. Um, so it's 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 been a lot of fun. Uh, we just got a training grant actually funded through the Department of Ed that uh, that provides scholarships or stipends, I should say, for for students in speech pathology and audiology. And they that's right. Congratulations. Get training. Yeah. They, and it's a focused on birth to three, although we have older kids who they can work with, too. But it's a it's a primary focus on birth to three. So we're doing a lot of early intervention and and incorporating telepractice into that as well with parent coaching and all of that. So that's that's been exciting as well. So we just got that funded back in October. So that'll be a five-year period. So we'll have funding for students who want to come and be trained. So that's that's a, a good thing. Well, guys, I, I appreciate your time. And I, I really do uh, appreciate what you've done for, for me personally and, and for many, many others in the field and how you've continued to promote uh, listening and spoken language and auditory verbal therapy uh, throughout your careers. And, uh, and I just wish you both the, the best of luck with everything that you have in the future, now and in the future. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you again, Jim and Leah, for being on the podcast. I love the stories that you told. I love hearing about your experiences. But most importantly, I love and appreciate all the work and, and what you've given to this profession, this whole world of listening and spoken language, and uh, we'll never be able to repay you. And so uh, from me personally, I just want to say thank you for all that you've done for families, for the children, and for other professionals in the field like myself. Uh, thank you again for, for all that you're doing, and we'll continue to do, I'm sure. And with that, uh, we will be back in another couple of weeks for another episode. If you don't mind, leave us a five-star review. That always helps us to attract new listeners and to, and to increase our listenership, which is what we want to do. We want more people to know that children with hearing loss can learn to listen and talk. And that's what this podcast is, is really about although we do venture into some other topics related to hearing loss, which is fine. But that's ultimately what we want to be able to communicate, that there are no limitations on these children and what they can do. And so, until next time, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.